So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, uh, I trust a familiar text to, to many of us, to most of us, this uh, story that we celebrate every December 25th, Christmas time, the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is God with us. He's the man. But what does that mean? And that is the period of history that we're in right now. We've moved into the mid-400s, 451 to be exact. And the question is, what do we say? What do we actually mean when we say what the Bible says? That God the Son became a man. So I want to pause for a second. This is, we don't need a mic for this, but please feel free to shout it out. This is a very, very difficult test. So I, I'm not anticipating many of you passing. How's that for an encouraging statement? Okay, ready? Who are you? Shout it out. Who are you? Well, that's what you are. But you are Rick Mihalik. And you are David Irvine. And you are Dina Irvine, the better Irvine. <laughs> I can say that from a safe distance because he can't do anything to me. And he had surgery recently, so... <laughs> But think about that. If someone says, who are you? You'd say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm me. I, I'm me. And, and you are not me, and I am not you. You are you. So who are you? You say your name. That's, that's who you are. Right? Okay. Okay, you all passed the first test. You know who you are. Second test. What are you? You can shout it out. Son of God. As in like you're the second person of the Trinity? Okay, all right. 
Just it's a class about heresy. You're not walking into a bear trap. Boom, yes, great. Here's your $5, David Irvine. We are humans made in the image of God. You are not an animal. You are not a cheetah. You are not anything else other than what God says you are. And God made you Adam, Adam. He made us mankind. We're called mankind because we're named after the first man, Adam. So we are Adam kind. And the definition of to be human in the Bible is to be created imago Dei, image of God. That's the definition. We're not evolved monkeys. We're not from protozoa. We're not any of those things. God made humanity. So, so what are we? We are image bearers of God, human image bearers of God. That's what we are. So there's a what you are. You're not an orangutan. You are a human image bearer of God. And then who are you? Well, that's your individual identity, your, your personhood. So you have a human nature because you are, we are, image of God. And then we are each individually a person. We are people. But we're not nameless, unidentified people. You are you and we are all individual. Does that make sense? There's who you are and what you are. That is part of the debate and the questions about what in the world does it mean that God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, became man. So who became man? What happened to his divinity? What happened to his humanity? And more. So if you, if you go back, if you have the notes, well, they're on the screen here, but if you have page 66 from last time in front of you, I just want to rehearse some of the questions that we should think about. For example, middle of page 66. Here's an important question. In the carnation, in the incarnation, did God change? Because we know that from Malachi, Malachi tells us, I, the Lord, do not change. That's Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, do not change. So did God change? Well, God says he doesn't change, so something happened in the incarnation. God became man. Uh, in the incarnation, did God put on a human shell, but then had a divine interior? Is that what happened? So he looked like a man on the outside, uh, but not on the inside, meaning that he had skin and bones and veins and arteries, all the, the flesh, but he had a... Um, divine-only brain, and a divine-only will, and a divine-only nature. In the incarnation, did God fuse humanity and divinity? So did yellow and blue dye get dropped together into Jesus to make green a third new thing? Is that, is that what took place when God became the Son incarnate? In the incarnation, did God become two persons? So was there a, a baby boy born of Mary who was just a man and he was born and when he uh, was received into Joseph's arms, at that point or some time later, did the 
spirit of, of God the Son fly down and possess this person named baby Jesus. And so it was actually Jesus' two persons, the divine person inside him and then the man person. Is that what happened? Um, how human was Jesus and how divine was he? Was it a 50-50 split? Divinity is more important than humanity, so 70-30, 80-20. What, what happened? And another way to say this is, did his divinity overwhelm his humanity such that in the end, Jesus, he really was divine and really was human, but because his divinity is infinite, it really just shrunk his humanity in some weird way to picture that, where he was just barely, barely human and mostly divine. All of those questions, how we answer them, actually impact whether or not we're saved. So it's not just like an ivory tower. Um, theologians have nothing better to do than to make up weird words and argue about things and then be monks who fight each other that we've seen in the past weeks. So if God does not change and he became incarnate, and as we saw last time, this is the bottom of page 66, these two verses, right? So we're looking at, if on the one hand, God says, I don't change. And then on the other hand, Hebrews 2.17, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So what does that mean? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation satisfied God's wrath and legal demands to make propitiation for the sins of the people, yet without sin. So Jesus, on the one hand, was like us in every respect, except no sin. And that was so that he could save us. So it's actually important how we answer this, this question. Because if God changes, God can't change, if God changes, that means that his word is broken and then he's actually now less than God because he changed and he's something else. And Jesus had to be a true man. So how do you make sense of these things? It's all these swirling questions that we looked at last week that bring us to what's called the Chalcedonian definition. Sometimes it's called the Chalcedonian creed, usually whatever, Chalcedonian definition. So if you would... Go over to, um, well, before we jump into it, page 74. If you have last week's notes, and if you don't, I'll put it on the screen. So on page 74, you have this chart. Left column is the Apostles' Creed, the first one we looked at. It's in the 100s. Then we spent a lot of time getting to the Nicene Creed of 381. That's that middle column. And the right column is the Chalcedonian definition. And what I'm trying to do here is show you the flow of thought and the biblical topics, the theological topics that are being covered in these statements and how they match with each other. But you can see on page 74, the entirety of the Chalcedonian definition is right there in that one Row the incarnation and virgin birth. So our, our, our grandfathers got together against all manner of heresies that were swirling about. 
that all threatened to change the gospel and to change Jesus into a different Jesus than what the Bible says. And because of all these heresies, they crafted together the Chalcedonian definition. But this definition, I told you last time, is like a footnote to the Nicene Creed. So it's like if you're reading a scholarly book and you're reading the Nicene Creed and you read, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, you put a footnote there and the Chalcedonian definition describes well, what we mean is this. So that, that's, that's where we're at. It's the year 451 and I, and I want to jump into it. Now before we jump into it, pause there. Any questions? Any clarifications? Thank you, Diane. So you said that um, this is a salvation issue, but what if we just don't understand it? Yes. Yes. That is such a good question. So if this is a salvation issue, what if we don't understand it? Um, no one understands it. <laughs> Be encouraged. It's the same thing with the Trinity. So we know that when we were all baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we were confessors of the Trinity. But none of us had PhDs in the Trinity. And then even if someone has a PhD in the Trinity, they don't understand the Trinity because only God understands the Trinity. So there's a, there should be a, um, a humility on our part to recognize, okay, the Bible says these things. And then here are things that sound weird that people say that seem to contradict the Bible. But how is that wrong? So we're going to kind of fit those together and it kind of creates guardrails on a road. So if that narrow path of salvation, let me mix a metaphor, has guardrails on it that, that protect us from going off into one ditch or the other of different kinds of heresies. So it's part of understanding is also knowing what it doesn't mean. Maybe I should have just said that. Part of understanding means you don't know what it, what is, what it doesn't mean. Very good question. Any other excellent questions like that? Any questions? An excellent question. Let's read this definition. I'm going to just read it through on 76, and then we will walk through it at some of this language. Following the saintly fathers, we all, with one voice, teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. The same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body. Consubstantial. Don't worry, we'll come back to that. What does that even mean? Consubstantial with the Father as regards His divinity and the same consubstantial with us as regards our humanity. Or his wait, where did I just lost myself? Yes, His humanity. Thank you. Like us in all respects, except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards His divinity, 
And in the last days, the same for us and for our salvation from the Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, only begotten, Son, God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed, Nicene Creed 381, of the fathers handed it down to us. Well, make sense? So, beautiful language. I... I marvel at the language, and there's also confusing things in here. And part of the confusion is they are using technical words, and this is what was difficult about last week together, is we're having to use the words they used when they were arguing about who Jesus is against different heresies to protect the gospel, and their Greek words are behind some of these strange words like consubstantial. Probably, I'm going to assume, not a word that you use every day. And then probably when you're praying, uh, you, you may not pray something along the lines of, thank you, Jesus, for being a single subsistent being. I'm going to go on a limb and assume that's not your normal prayer life. But there's still beautiful biblical truths being safeguarded. So let's walk through this fairly quick. Um, and then uh, take questions along the way, and I'll do my best to answer some pretty technical stuff. So, still on page 76 here. So let's get into some detail. Look at these gospel details of the Chalcedonian definition. So their preamble, following the saintly fathers, we all, with one voice, teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord. The writers of the creed or the definition, self-consciously indicate that they're following the saintly fathers. So that's really important. They under, they're self-consciously understanding we're not inventing new doctrines. We're not trying to make things up. We're not necessarily trying to make things harder to understand. We are in agreement. We're in a stream of orthodoxy. We're in a stream of the gospel that we're trying to protect. So the, protect. So the theology of the of the confession is not new in the sense of new or changed theology. This is clarified theology against heresy. So remember, we've been seeing all along, theological clarity is born out of theological controversy. And so if someone says, Jesus was only 15% human and then 85% divine, how would you respond to that? Because that's, that's a gross error that deviates from the Bible teaches. 
but the Bible doesn't talk that way. So you have to think and apply scripture to something strange like that. So they say one voice that communicates that not only these guys, but for all believers, it's a unity of belief and confession. Now, they use the opening language, one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And they use that word same quite a few times. And then they use that word one. So wh why are they speaking that way? They're actually taking language from the Bible. So they're talking that way because the Bible talks that way. For example, you have Ephesians 4, uh, 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So there in Ephesians 4, lots of ones. And the point of Paul, inspired by the Spirit in Ephesians, is to show the unity and non-deviation. There's only one gospel and one God. It doesn't change. The gospel doesn't. God doesn't change. We're all one in Christ. So when the confession says one and the same Son, they're, they're communicating that we're, it's still the gospel, and they're communicating, uh, they're, they're, they're um, anticipating well, what does it mean when we say Jesus is truly God and truly man? Does that mean that he is two persons? And they're arguing here in this definition, Jesus is one person with two natures. So that's where all the language is moving. One person, his name is Jesus, but he has two natures, divine and human. So who is he? Jesus. What, he, what is he? God the Son incarnate. And then 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God the Father from whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then here it is. And one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom uh, were made and we exist. So, so there's an example of just why are they using this language? You, you might get tripped up on that. Why are they saying one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ? And then you get into, we could go to the high priestly prayer in John 17. But here in John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So that's a trinity statement. But the Chalcedon definition is looking for what does it mean that Jesus is divine and human. So that's kind of where we're going. Questions on just the, phrase, the language of one and the same son. So now they're going to get really lyrical and rhythmic and poetic. And Diane, to your question earlier, a lot of what they're doing is they're just reading the Bible. We know that this is true. We don't know really what it means, but it's true. And it can't be this and it can't be that. So it's somewhere in this area of truth. So now they're going to start saying, okay, so he is the same. There's that word again, same. Perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. So think about what that means. That means that Jesus lacks nothing as to his divinity and Jesus lacks nothing as to his humanity. He is not more or less God than the Trinity and he is not more or less human than you or me. He's, he's perfect in humanity. 
something similar, the same, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body. Now, last time, on pages 68 and 69, we learned back then that there was this one heretic. This was his starting premise, which was wrong. He said, the source of sin in people is their reason, it's their mind, it's their intellect, it's their rationality. That's where sin comes from. That's what he believed. That was his starting point. If that's true, which it's not, we're just, all of us is, in, is sin. But if it was only your mind, then that would mean, he said, Jesus could not have a human mind. Because the human mind is only sinful. So he would say Jesus did not have a rational soul. That's, that's how they talked. Well, uh, if Jesus does not have a rational soul, if he doesn't have a human mind, uh, um, if, he is, if he is not fully human, let me say it that way, if he's not truly human, if he's not truly human, then he can't save us. Think back to Hebrews 2. He had to be made like us in every respect. So he can't be 97% human. So that's where they write in here that he is of a rational soul and body, truly man. It's not pretend. Now let's think about this phrase, truly God and truly man. I used to say this. Maybe you say it. Maybe you've heard other people say it. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. That's not the best way to communicate. Here's why we actually become heretics. We become eutychiasts. And unless you want to be a eutychiast, what I know none of you want to be a eutychian, so let's rescue you from eutychianism, you and me. To say 100% God and 100% man, I know that when most, all, when I used to say this, when I've heard pastors say this, and when I hear other people say this, they're trying to say Jesus is Truly God and truly man. So uh, assuming the best. Here's where the accidental error comes in. This turns into a math problem, right? Right, because it implies that Jesus is now 200% of something new. So someone could mishear you say that. I, I was in community college for three years, but I know that 100 plus 100 is 200. So then, if Jesus is now 200% of something new, that is what the heresy of Eutychianism is. Jesus is a new third thing. So part of the precision of language is not trying to be a legalist or a Pharisee. It's just trying to be clear and trying to be helpful and guard against things, uh, guard against potential error. Uh, and then we can say he's, he's fully God and fully man. And that is a little bit better to say than 100% and 100%. The issue here is that someone could think, well, could, could God become less full? And then that's when you get into maybe 70% divine and 30% human. Someone could just start thinking down that road. And so it's better not to say fully God and fully man, or truly God, or 100% and 100%, but to say truly God and truly man, because it's just true or false. Is he a man? Yes, true. I almost said 
is a hundred percent true. Take that to the bank. So um, we're going to move into a, a new aspect of the confession. Any questions on this idea of perfect in divinity, perfect in humanity, truly God, truly man, rational soul and body? Questions, clarifications? Yes, John. What do you think about holy God and holy man? Like Ho holy, whole, like as in W H O L L Y. Yeah. You could totally say that. I just figure they say this. So I'm going to say what they're going to say. Okay. Um, I think actually, so the, so I talked about Eutychianism, right? A third new thing. I should have uh, wrote it here in this number two. But this, the potential heresy with fully and fully, or holy and holy, as in complete and complete, would cause, could potentially cause someone to go down the road. Does that mean that Jesus could be incomplete human, part human? And that's the heresy of Apollinarianism that we saw last week, where it's the, the interior, certain percent of divinity, and exterior is certain percent of humanity. We want to guard people from potentially walking down any doors we don't intend to open. So you can say fully God and fully man, but they use truly, and it's 100% true. Very good question. Anything else? Yes, John, keep going, buddy. So in that sense, would it be safe to say that... Um, a lot of error comes from trying to quantify both God and man instead of just saying like whether he is or isn't because I feel like when people try to wrap their minds around something, they try to make it quantified. They try to give it like some weight, but the fact is, is that it's just whether he is or isn't. That's an excellent way to say it. We can't quantify who the Lord is. You can't be quantified. I guess you are 100% you. You're truly you. It is. Just, it's true or false. Yeah, well said. Got a third one in there? All right, so now we get into some fun language. We'll move into the, keep moving on. So we've, we've established divinity has not changed in Jesus. Humanity has not changed in Jesus when he was incarnate. We've established that he is True God and true man, nothing is false. We've established that he is completely human, the whole rational soul and body comment. Now they move into this statement, that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity. And then here's the other wing of the plane, so to speak. And the same, there's that word again, the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. So what's going on here? This is a word, the Greek behind consubstantial is the word we heard a long time ago, homoousios, same substance, same, be, uh, same essence, same thing. So remember when I asked the question, what are you? And we are human image bearers of God. Jesus is, well, Jesus, what are you? As to his divinity, he is God the Son. 
Um, and as to his humanity, he is the son of David, born of the Virgin Mary, truly man. So he's homoousius with the, with the Trinity, and he's homoousius with you and me. Same being, same essence. I don't want to say creature because God is not created, and thing is impersonal. It's weird to say it in English because we really don't have a word that's going to capture it necessarily. So this means then that Jesus is not more or less divine. We're hearing that again. And he's not more or less human than us. He is homoousius in two senses, divine and human. Questions, clarifications, astute observations. Because what are we guarding against here? If Jesus' divinity changed in the incarnation, he is no longer God because God cannot change. So we lose the gospel if his divinity changed. But if Jesus is not true man, then we are not saved. Because not a true man died on the cross and accomplished nothing. If, if he was not true man. So these are all different ways of putting those guardrails on that narrow path to salvation. And then here's a statement. Like us in all respects, except for sin. We already talked about that. And this is, let's pause here for a moment. So we looked at Hebrews 2.17 earlier, made like his brothers in every respect. Here's Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, two things. Why does it matter that God the Son became incarnate? Why does it matter that every Christmas we read Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name God with us. Why is that important? Well, one, Jesus is able to atone for our sins, so you can be saved. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But what it also means is he's not the kind of God-man who comes down and atones for you and then is fed up with you because he had to leave the beauty of heaven to come and rescue dirtbags like us. I mean that mostly respectfully. No, what do we have? We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weakness and your weakness and my weakness. Our remaining sin, the temptations that we face, we are skilled practitioners at giving into temptation. In our thought life, in our attitude life, in our action life, the things that we do. Sin, it seems so often, can master us so easily. If Jesus was not truly man, the good God-man, then he would not be able to sympathize with our weakness. Because the sins that we give into, he was tempted by, but he never gave into. And resisting temptation is one of the greatest forms of suffering there is. Now, Jesus did not have sin inside him like us that was wanting to act out or just even just occurring, but he still faced the temptation to sin. It was real. 
and he never gave in. So why does it matter that he's both divine and man? It's because this verse right here. He is the one, he is always the one who is most happy and most welcoming of you to, uh, to boldly approach his throne of grace and seek him in prayer. Whether it's forgiveness for a sin that you committed, the need for wisdom, or just gratitude that he has set his love upon you, that's why it matters. That's why it matters that he's like us in all respects. Because if he's not like us, then it's not true. I think some weeks back, someone asked a question, and we're talking about like all the different pantheon of Roman gods, Zeus and Hermes and everybody else. And one thing that I came across was they, when they would come down in the mythology, they, those were their versions of theophanies. They actually weren't human. They were gods. This is where what's so amazing about Christianity, the truth, the true story of the world, is that God himself didn't just appear in human form. He became man, truly. That's why it matters. Here's why this also matters. I think we, we um, I told you about the conversation last week I had, sitting with these two guys, and this guy said to me, um, he was struggling with something, and I appealed to the Gospels, and I appealed to Jesus, hey man, look to Jesus as your example, you know, follow him, and he said, I can't, Jesus is not my example, he's God. So he was a, he was a heretic, unintentionally, I think. He became an Apollinarian, that really he was just a divine inside with a human shell, and so Jesus is not someone we can imitate. But read your Bible for two seconds, and you discover everywhere from everywhere that Jesus is the one we are supposed to imitate because we can. So here's the thing with his humanity. When we hear that he doesn't have sin, people will begin to think, well, then he wasn't really human. Because every human being from Adam when he fell on, has sin. Yes, except for Jesus. Why? We err thinking that to be human is to be sinful. That is biblically false. Key to the statement of Jesus not having sin is recognizing that to be truly human does not mean one must be sinful. In fact, to be truly human is to be sinless. Adam and Eve were created perfect and sinless as the image of God. Sin was later introduced as a parasitic abnormality and deformity of humanity that mars the image of God but does not fully remove it. So we still have the image of God, even though we're fallen, But sin is not natural. That's what's really important for us to recognize. So the promise and hope of glory, new natures, no more sin, no more curse, that's, that's what it's supposed to be like. The Garden of Eden before the fall and then the new Garden of Eden um, post-glory. Does that make sense? If Jesus did have sin, he couldn't be a savior. Because he would need someone else to atone for his own sins. So any questions on these two parts here about the consubstantial and the like us in all respects except for sin? Yes. 
Uh, it's not directly related, so I apologize, but do you, is there any evidence for, a, for an age of innocence? Uh, I was asked that the other day. Um, like, do baby, are babies innocent? If a six-month-old were to unfortunately pass, where would they go? Yeah, the, here, here's how I, um, that's such an important question that I'm going to answer that. Um, we know a few things. So I'm going to put guardrails up, and the guardrails are going to lead to a path where I believe that uh, all children who die go to heaven. And not as a Hallmark card, wishful sentiment, or anything along those lines. So first, we know that every single human being who is born is guilty of Adam's sin. So we also know, and this is actually the spoiler alert for when we get to the debate between Augustine and Pelagius. Pelagius taught that people are born as clean slates, that we're born sinless, and then at some point, because of our environment, we choose to sin. That's false. We are born with a sinful nature. We are born sharing the guilt of Adam. And then we actually will sin um, at some point in actuality, in practice. So what that means then is um, somehow the work of Jesus on the cross, life, death, and resurrection, would need to be applied to um, a, uh, a, a one-month uh, miscarriage to... Uh, a young child, toddler, um, who dies, somehow Christ's blood would, would be applied in such a way, and here I'm appealing to God's character, his goodness and his nature and things like that. But there's actually a text. When David sins with Bathsheba, um, what, 2 Samuel 8, 9? Read, second, read all of 2 Samuel. You'll find it. David sins with Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant, and the child dies. When David, um, he is he's in dust and ashes in effect, and he is, he is before the Lord, the child is sick, and he's begging for the Lord to uh, save the child, and the, the Lord does not. Say, excuse me, heal the child is what I'm intending to say. Let me be careful of my words. So when the baby dies, um, David says, he shall not come to me, but I will go to him. So David knew that he would go to be with the baby, and I'm pointing down because in the Old Testament, before the cross, Old Testament believers went down to Sheol, the grave. Now David has another son, Absalom. And when Absalom died, Absalom led the rebellion against David, and when Absalom died, David, and Absalom was evil, and he worked against the Lord, David was broken by grief and lament because the implication is he knew that he would not see Absalom again because Absalom died as an unbeliever. So I would point to that text to say, what is it that David knew to know that he would not see Absalom, but he would see the baby who died? And he would see, them, see the, the, the baby in the grave, in Sheol. Uh, it's, it's those... Those kind of fit together to give me a, the a theological conclusion. This plus this plus this makes me think that all children are saved. Some are going to say only children of believers are saved. Um, and some will say uh, no children are saved. 
but I think the no children are saved contradicts what I just said. And given God's character, I believe the all children are saved against just the children of believers. Um, and so that has tremendous bearing on a human sin and wickedness that gets perpetrated on children and what's going on in Gaza and Israel right now. That regardless of the political nature and your stance on Israel, there's Palestinian believers, there's Israeli believers, and then there's unregenerate Jews and unregenerate Gazans, but there's children dying, right? And so this applies to something along those lines. Any other questions about the Chalcedonian definition? <laughs> All right, so if we keep going... Jesus is begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity. So we heard language like this back in the Nicene Creed. And in the last days, the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer as regards his humanity. So they are retaining the language that within the Trinity... Father, Son, and Spirit, the one God in three persons, the relationship within the Trinity, the Son is the eternally begotten Son. He is not created, but he is always in the position of, of a Son. He's eternally begotten. But here, in these last days, he was born of Mary. Now, here's where some controversy comes in. The language of God-bearer. So, pause for a second. Don't read your notes. Don't read your notes. If you read your notes, you're exempt. You cannot answer this question. If, you, if, you, if Mary is called the God-bearer, what do you think um, are some potential problems with a statement like that? To more than a human. What's that? It elevates Mary to a position above the rest of us. Yes. That's good. Any, any, anything else? Anita? Maybe not even above just us, but above God himself. Yes. Both of you are correct in identifying some of potential errors. Okay, so let's, let's look at this. So we have, he is the eternal son, never came into being, right? That's the whole Arian controversy that gave rise to the Nicene Creed way back so long ago that we looked at. Now we're dealing with the incarnation again. So, again, his divinity did not come into being. Jesus as God the Son has eternally existed. <coughs> Excuse me. But at the same time, Jesus' humanity did come into being. So his human nature is not co-eternal with the Trinity. There's a point in time when a human nature was taken upon himself by God the Son. So they use the language... Theotokos. 
And that can be translated as either birth giver of God. Can't use that these days because that can be misconstrued in the transgender arguments. What it really means is mother of God. So, so what's, what's going on there? Here's their intent. The intent, they are actually safeguarding against heresy by calling Mary Theotokos, mother of God. They're guarding against heresy. So in that sense, I'm going to actually argue we can agree with it, with qualifications. So the intent is to safeguard the biblical truth that the baby conceived, gestated, and born of Mary was truly God all along. So when the Holy Spirit granted conception, or whatever language we use, when the Holy Spirit uh, put uh, the zygote, however it worked, I'm speculating right now, <laughs> when the Holy Spirit um, granted conception, what they're trying to argue is that when the person born from Mary was God the Son incarnate. That's what they're trying to communicate. That's all they're wanting to accomplish. Kind of. This protects against the heresy of Apollinarianism, where, the, where God the Son later possessed baby Jesus after he was born. They're trying to guard against that. They're trying to say, no, when conception occurred, true God, true man. Now, now, to world without end. That's who Jesus is. But as you guys identified, two problems, two potential problems with this. Number one, this could be misunderstood to imply that God came into being. That maybe uh, the third, or the second person of the Trinity came into being in Mary's womb as if God could be created and that's the heresy of Arianism. And so there are people who had problems calling Mary the mother of God for that reason. They're gonna, God is eternal. You're saying that he's created because they misunderstood their intent. The other is that it could be misconstrued that Mary retains a motherly authority or influence over Jesus, even now the God-man, in his exalted state. And this is the error of Roman Catholicism and orthodoxy, i.e. Eastern orthodoxy in its varieties. The veneration of Mary took this point and went too far. And actually, some, some historians and theologians, as they look back at this time period, they could see that that veneration of Mary was, was already taking root in the populace, like at the pew level, kind of well, actually everywhere. So part of the heat and conflict about them wanting to keep Theotokos in there was the budding realities of, of, um, of Mary veneration. So um, I'll take questions in a moment on this, this idea of Theotokos. So Protestant commentators often view Jesus' words to Mary, this is John 2, uh, at the Cana wedding, when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Commentators will suggest that that language, the way Jesus talks to Mary, because Jesus has begun his ministry, he's beginning to distance himself from her in a, um, kind of in a, in a uh, well, mother-son type 
way. It's possible. Uh, when the same is true with John 19, Jesus is on the cross, there's Mary and John. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. So it's suggested also by commentators that this is not merely John now taking care of Mary since Jesus was crucified, but it's actually also another step of Jesus distancing himself from Mary due to his impending exaltation in the resurrection as the incarnate last Adam. I think that that's true. That's, that's debatable. Um, but this is part of the reason why we as Protestants, uh, you know, do not ascribe that veneration of Mary. We, we respect her like we do all believers, and she is the blessed virgin who gave birth to the Lord Christ. Praise God for that gift for her. But in terms of praying to Mary, we don't to get her to pull some strings with Jesus while he's on the throne next to the Father. Now here's what's interesting. We heard about the heretic Nestorius. Now if you remember about him, here's what his... His language was imprecise, and what he wanted to say, it sounded like, was Jesus was two persons, Gollum and Smeagol, like a schizophrenic, multiple personality disorder, as if Jesus was a man walking along, just a human, a good one, he's a human, walk along, and then the Spirit of Christ, so there's the person of Jesus, the man walking, and then the person of God the Son comes down and possesses Jesus, and now he's two persons. That's what Nestorius sounded like. They're reacting against Nestorius and saying, no, he's one person with two natures. But Nestorius could not get over calling Mary mother of God. He did not like that because um, he thought that it would create either what we saw earlier, Arianism, God coming into being, or he thought, well, it sounds like you're saying um, that there's Apollinarianism. He's a human shell with a Jesus on the inside type thing. So here's, in an effort to protect the two natures of Christ, to a fault, the heretic Nestorius rejected the title Theotokos because it appears he assumed the two natures would blend and mix together, Eutychianism, and the potential for Arianism. So he preferred Christotokos. I actually like this. I think this would be really helpful. That is, mother of Christ or Christ-bearer. Now, Nestorian heresy aside, I think it's very helpful and it's clarifying and maybe even a preferable title to give to Mary. And, you know, Isaiah 7.14, God with us. But when Isaiah 7.14 is talking about the virgin giving birth and, and, and calling his name Emmanuel... In the context of the book of Isaiah, this is talking about the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ. This is part of who the Christ is. So if you use Christotakos, you actually preserve the reality that Mary um, gave birth to God the Son incarnate, but it guards against the veneration of Mary in one sense. You probably can't get away from the veneration of Mary but just here's, you can look at that more if you want later. So can a Protestant agree with Theotokos? Yes, we can, given those qualifications. 
When we say mother of God, we are simply saying that she gave birth to God the Son incarnate and that he was truly God and truly man all along. Yes, Rick. Can I ask you? You're good. Can I ask you a question? Um, speaking of, of the Roman Catholic Church, Luther broke away from the church. What was his position on this, Mother of God? Did he come out and have a clarification on these issues? I believe that he affirmed, I think many of the Protestant reformers affirmed the Chalcedonian definition. And when the Protestant Reformation happened, the Lutherans, and just basically everybody, began to write their own uh, confessions. And many of their confessions contain these creeds in them, except for the Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith did not include the Chalcedonian definition. I have no idea why. Now, the internal workings of Luther's perspective, I have no idea. That's a really good question. But we do know that our forefathers of the Protestant Reformation uh, would not have, most of them would not have, they would, they would not have venerated Mary or prayed to the saints or prayed to Mary at the very least. There's different degrees of honor given to her, but very good question. So yes, with qualification, we can agree with Theotokos insofar as we're just saying she gave birth to God the Son incarnate. And then here's a big statement bound together. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away divinity of his divine name, but rather the property of both natures, the divinity of his divine nature and the humanity of his human nature, the property of both natures is preserved and comes together in a single person and a single subsistent being. These are the guardrails. These are the guardrails. Jesus is one person. He's not two. He's not Gollum and Smeagol. He's one person but he's truly God and truly man. So what's going on here? They're trying to emphasize this idea of the unity of the person of Christ. Um, so unity would be, I think I mentioned this last week. There, it's not like there's a, there's a command switch inside of Jesus and these little elves are in there and they, they move the switch to his divine side for a little bit. And then, oh, we need the human side of Jesus. And so they switch it to the human side of Jesus. And you kind of never know, was this the God part of him and the human part of him? That We don't talk that way. Everything, so the person that became incarnate was God the Son. And so he took humanity to himself. He didn't take a human person to himself. It's the person of God the Son, who is fully, truly divine, became truly God, or truly man. We'll, we'll come back to that. So they're trying to communicate. He's one person, 
but he's truly God and truly man. So here we get into some language. He's one and the same as balanced and qualified by in two natures. It's the word phusis or phusase. Those who deny that Jesus has two natures and say he only has one nature are called monophysites or monophysites, one nature. Okay, why is this important? God cannot change. Jesus must be a true man. If God changes, you can't be saved. And if Jesus is not a true man, then you can't be saved. He's got to be both. So if the human nature is swallowed up by the divine, if they mix together, yellow and blue make green, then you lose God and you lose humanity. They have to be preserved. That's what they're trying to communicate here. So he's two natures, a human and divine nature. So when I asked you, um, what are you? And we said human image bearers of God. We have a human nature. There are properties, qualities. There's things that make us human and not uh, jellyfish. That's what distinguishes us. So when it says that he's two natures, he has all the things that make God, God, and all the things that make man, man. So he has to have two natures. Um, one thing I came across, put it this way. When Jesus, Jesus referred to himself, he could say, I, not we. That makes sense? Gollum and Smeagol. At the same time, the emphasis in this section is, look at those words, one, union, single person, and then single subsistent being. So the term subsistent, for whatever reason, it's translated this way, it's that word hypostasis that we've seen quite a few times, and it simply means person. He's a single person, a single person being. Christ is one hypostasis in two phusis. He's one person with two natures. Asis. Union. Hypostatic is a verbal form of hypostasis. So they're putting the guardrails up, and we believe what they're saying because it's what the Bible teaches. So they add more. No confusion. This means... The two natures are not mixed, about, mixed together, yellow and blue make green, and there's never any uncertainty which nature is which. Is that divine or human? I can't tell. They are, there's no confusion between the natures, but there's also no change. Neither nature is altered in the incarnation. There's also no division. The natures are joined together in a way that they can't be taken apart. And there's no mixture of the natures or carving apart of the natures. So there's no percentages. But they're also put together, and this is what's so hard for me to understand, and I'm sure all of us, that something new is not created. It's two natures he has, but he's one person, but they can't be divided. But they're not mixed. Figure that out. It's the guardrails. And there's no separation. Again, 
The hypostatic union means the two natures cannot be disconnected or uncoupled. But they're still yellow and blue. The two natures in one person, Jesus did not de-incarnate when he ascended back to heaven, but forever remains incarnate. Right now, forever. He will forever be God the Son incarnate. Any questions on O fuses and monophysites and, and hypostases, anything like that, or anything else? Do a spelling test? Pastor Scott. All right, so we're talking about a lot of different kinds of heresies, and a lot of them are kind of blending in in my head. So my, I guess my question would be... But Jesus is not blended. Correct. Okay, keep going. Correct. So we read in, in Matthew genealogy, right? And it's basically uh, sin is inherited, so, so to speak, from from Adam through the generations and Matthew even starts his his book by talking about the generations leading up to Christ so which of the, the heresies that we've talked about would would cover the idea that since Jesus is in the line of you know sinner was the son of sinner is the son of sinner and, and then you get to Jesus and therefore he must have some sin in him in his nature since he is fully human so which 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 heretic would that fall under Who, whose trading card would we play in that one yeah Nestorius so what the way that could be it's a really good qu question brother the way that that could be misconstrued is that well here's a human genealogy and so here's Jesus being born so he's just being born as a man and then later he gets adopted as God the Son or something along those lines. The problem with that, the reason we need the incarnation and the virgin birth is what God did with Adam in the garden, making him out of clay. God did in Mary's womb by making the last Adam with some of Mary's DNA, I think. And... Um, so he's born of Mary, so he is still a son of David, and he's a true man. He, he has to have her DNA, most likely. Uh, but he is also a, the last Adam who's, who's made. So that's not clear in Matthew 1 when you read it. There we're just getting the human genealogy. He is from David, Abraham, and Adam. I did that out of order. But yeah, someone could think that he's two persons or got adopted or something like that. Hopefully that helps um so something that's been going through my head is so jesus has been you know he's from eternity all through the old testament he was there so there's some parts of the old testament that like i'm thinking of shadrach meshach and abednego in the fire and uh. when the king saw a fourth man like the son of the gods like i know i don't want to assume that it's christ but what, what is some of the thoughts around that? Because did Jesus show himself in any form before the incarnation? Yes. Yes, okay. he did. 
Joshua 5. So you have, um, so here, here's my, my, so couple details. So technically speaking, Jesus did not get named Jesus until Joseph named him Jesus because Gabriel told him to do so. And yet from eternity, God's plan was to name the second person of the Trinity Jesus. So in the OT, you tend to hear the phrase theophany. So it's a, an appearance of God, like when the three um, people show up to Abraham and then who's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the captain of the Lord's host in, in Joshua 5, and then certainly uh, the one who looks like a son of man, which is really important to the book of Daniel, because that is God the Son, uh, given the context of the book. I think all, if not almost all, and I err on the side of all, of God's appearances in the Old Testament are all Christophanies. They are pre-incarnate manifestations of God the Son pre-incarnate. And so when, when, uh, when Joshua draws his sword and says, you know, who are you to the captain of the Lord's army? And he says, you know, who are you for? And he says, I'm for myself. Take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. It's not an angel. That's actually God himself who's there. And it's the person of the Son. Um, so, yes. I'm answering that question. I think, I think there are... So I, that leads me to think that who, who was there talking to Abraham... I think it was two angels and then Christ pre-incarnate. I also tend to think that it was Christ pre-incarnate talking to Moses in the burning bush. Um, just thinking of how the Bible assigns different job descriptions to the different members of the Trinity. Um, I tend to think that Jesus is the one that we see showing up all the time in the OT. Very good question. What else? Any, any other questions? All right, hypostasis. Uh, eight, page 80. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, only begotten, Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets in the Old Testament taught from the beginning about him, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us in the gospel accounts, and as the creed of the fathers handed down to us, Nicene Creed of 381. So that's her concluding statement. And the beginning there, kind of to Scott's, Scott's question a little bit of, a moment ago, he's not parted or divided into two persons, but is the same only begotten son. And that is the Chalcedonian definition. If Just show you what you have. I would encourage you, I'm not going to read it to us, but on pages 81 and 82 there, this is actually the full text of the Chalcedonian definition. I didn't know this, but if you look on page 82 there, the second to last paragraph, that's what I just read to us. That's technically speaking the actual definition, but everything you see around it, they actually include the Nicene Creed of 381, they include the Nicene Creed of 325, and then they put a bunch of stuff in there about how they're fighting heretics. Um, we read a portion of Leo's tome last week. They included that in here, and then two letters by, I think, a guy named Gregory Nazianzus. 
So that, that is the Chalcedonian definition. The Nicene Creed was about the Trinity primarily. And that begged questions. Well, then, okay, we got the Trinity settled. Makes total sense. What does it mean that God became man? And that's the point of this, this definition. Um, any questions, comments overall on the definition? Yes. As the mic's coming to you, I would encourage you guys to read, read take some time. We just, that's a lot of stuff. Just read through it a couple times. It's beautiful. I keep going back to Mary as the mother God-bearer. And I just wonder that, you know, this is just my thought as a mother, that um, God had, we keep talking about God being the man, but he was a baby first. And he needed a mother on earth to, to go through that process, this is my opinion, <laughs> to be, truly be a man. I mean, to experience everything. He had to go kind of through a childhood. Oh, yeah, she's absolutely his mother. Well, no, what I mean is that that, that was her role. Yes. And almost like the teenagers when he was on the cross and he was protecting her and, you know, going to be there and leaving. Well, and here's what's, here's what's something that's interesting to think about. While Jesus was the helpless babe and had to learn to talk, as to his human nature, as his, to his divine nature, he was upholding the entire universe by the word of his power and maintaining all the strong nuclear force in Mary's body to keep her from exploding at the same time. Yeah. So, he's, <laughs> so he is, so we have to think about his, his natures and that impacts just his, you know, he's unmixed, unconfused, but his, his divinity never changed and so he still operated as as god the son but he was also incarnate and that that is something to think about this christmas <laughs> yes oh, i'm sorry oh go ahead I, well okay so god doesn't change and jesus jesus didn't ever change you know i mean but if he goes he goes back to heaven as his incarnate self and he's he doesn't he doesn't now not now he's not a man too now he's you know because because he's 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 resurrected i mean i don't know but the thing is if if he didn't change if he never change um i'm wondering if if the fact that we are made in his image was he somehow always like that Keep going with that question. I don't understand. Well, because because we keep saying he didn't change, but but when he went back to heaven, then then he it was his um, he still had a body. So he he goes back to heaven, and so when we we see him in heaven or on earth as on the new earth, then we can see him as as a man. Really, you know, we we will uh, we will know him in that in that manner, in a sense, and so. If he didn't change, then he must have always been that way. Are you saying he always looked like a man? Yeah, that he always looked like a man. Not not that he was, you know, not that he was just a man, but he was. He always looked like that because we look like him, and we. This is what we look like. Yes, <laughs> I yes as to what you're saying. Let me bring some clarification to that. So, 
So Jesus, um, when he shows up in the Old Testament, he shows up like he has a, he, he looks like he has a human form, and it's usually glorious to see. But if we were to speculate, did when in Joshua 5, when Joshua saw the captain of the Lord's army, did he look like a ghost Jesus of what he would look like a few thousand years later when he was born? I don't think so. So he would have just taken some type of resplendent, glorious, shiny, looks like a human form. He didn't look like anything until he became incarnate because God is, is spirit. The Father is spirit, the Holy Spirit is spirit, and Jesus is spirit until he became incarnate. So then when he became incarnate, then he took the form of whatever he looks like, and then now he will forever, into world without end, look like the way he looks in his glorified state, still as truly God and truly man. So we don't, all we have the descriptions in the Old Testament is, is like a man or shining. But it, that sounds like a change. Yeah, so when we talk about change, as to his divinity, so this is like, if, so if you go back and read the creed, as to his divinity, nothing changed. So that's, that's the, you know, so how, how can a seven-week-old who can't talk uphold the universe by the word of his power? I'm not entirely sure how that works, but that's, that's what happened. So his divinity never underwent any change. That's what all this language is, not mixed, not confused, not divided. So I don't know if that... So the part of the, so we have to kind of become functional heretics to understand this. Is you have to pick, picture the divinity and humanity of Jesus. And, and the person of God the Son, one God and three persons, the person of God the Son took humanity to himself. He didn't take a, a second person to himself, but a human nature to himself. But that human nature didn't mix with his divinity. But it's not separated from his divinity. And that's about as much sense as I can make of it because that's what this says. <laughs> Jonathan, you have to ask quick because Anita's like waving her hand. Well, my, my question is, I guess it's similar uh, with the question and the comment about the theophany. Yeah. When the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God... Um, appeared um, at that point did he he was one entity one person one did he person have two essences there do, was the human essence there no so then when he became man um, you had one person with two essence yeah two, two natures that's right so okay so that's where it gets a little confusing in the Old Testament, <laughs> yeah. he's one because he doesn't have the human side. And then the incarnation, he's one but has two natures. Correct? Correct. Okay. So the, the, the tricky thing, well, the whole thing is tricky. So remember what we're guarding against. He's not Gollum and Smeagol, two persons, a divine person and a human person. He's just one person. 
but he doesn't have a divine nature and human nature that get mixed up into yellow and blue make green. His divinity never changes, and his humanity remains full humanity. Because if either changed, he would no longer be God or human. He'd be a third new thing. So they're trying to put the language together to say, okay, we know he's one person, so who became incarnate? It wasn't just some dude named Jesus walking around in Nazareth. God the Son became incarnate. And when that happened, it was the, the union, without mixing, of divine and human natures. And then what I was trying to say is we can't think that there was a switch that would sometimes lean into the divine nature a little bit and then turn off the divinity and turn on the human nature. There, he's operating um, um, completely as a person like you do. So um, please let me know if you think this is heretical or anything. It but probably is, but <laughs> just go for it. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But um, no, so going back to the earlier question about God changing when he became man or when he put on, when he became incarnate, um, the way I'm thinking about it is in the OT, he was something yet to be revealed. Or, like, he hadn't been revealed as Jesus incarnate yet, but he was still Jesus, I guess. And uh, for some reason, the way I'm thinking of it is if you have any experience playing video games, you always have that character who is yet to be unlocked, and he's like that silhouette. Like, he's yet to be revealed, but he's still that character. Like, you just don't know who it is exactly yet. So... So you have to, like, collect enough Jesus shards to unlock your character? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you just have to get through the rest of the story to find out who it really is. Well, so the thing is, the human nature... I know it's a poor analogy, but... Of, well, no, that's interesting. Let's just assume it's heresy, but let's keep thinking about it. <laughs> I, I think that's really interesting because um, Jesus' human nature was created. It came into being. His human nature is not eternal. It's, it's now eternal moving forward, but from eternity past, he did not have a human nature. Um, that's part of what makes the gospel the gospel, right? God become man to rescue us and be us. Yeah, we're going to think about that heresy a little bit more. Uh, Anita, do you have are you next? Then we'll get Rick and then we'll get Carrie. So in Romans, when it calls him the second Adam, he didn't, he was not the second Adam from eternity. Keep fleshing that out a little bit. So before you said that his human nature is fully human because he didn't have sin. So, if he didn't have a human nature from all eternity, how could he be the second Adam? Does that make sense? I think so. That's a really good question. So, in the same way that the first Adam, Genesis 1 and 2, 
is created and comes into being. That's what God does with the truly human aspect of Jesus in the womb of Mary. It's he's, he's um, the humanity and the name Jesus are, are applied to that person is occurring at that real time in that real moment. However, God's gospel plan, his plan to... Um, the gospel was not a reaction to human sin. The gospel has always been God's plan from before creation so that we would magnify his grace in redeeming lost sinners like us. So in that sense, the plan was always to send God the Son at a certain point in time, at a certain place, through a certain young woman to be born. And at that point, he's the last Adam. And so when you read a lot of the language of the New Testament, especially Hebrews, when Jesus dies on the cross and when Jesus rises from the grave, it talks about him being enthroned. And we go, well, no, wait a second. God has always been king, so how can he be enthroned then? He's being enthroned as the true God, true man. The last Adam um, who did not give in to Satan's temptations, but Jesus succeeded all the way through his death and resurrection. So he's he has not always been the last Adam, but the plan was always for him to become the last Adam. Yeah, he wasn't. So he, we were getting into the omniscience and eternality of God and kind of messing with time. And God is not a reactor. He is an actor. So he knows what he's going to do. So he, he knows everything that's going to take place. And it's not because he foresees what's going to happen and then decides to make it happen. He foreplans it all. And so then he, that's what, when Paul says in Acts, according to his foreknowledge, uh, Pilate and all the other guys came together to accomplish God's will in, in crucifying the son. So you have to distinguish between his identity. He did not, he was not identified as the last Adam until he was born. I'm not convinced. You're not convinced? <laughs> I'm not. Um, if, so I'm going to go back well, to well, what uh, Carrie said, though. Wait, if wait, he wait, wasn't yeah. always human. Right. Then he couldn't be an Adam. Adam is human. Right. And, but then you would have to add something to his nature for him to become something else, which implies a change. Right, Apollinarianism. So that's why he that's why he took to himself What's the difference? A human nature. <laughs> well and that and that's where the Cal I mean that's that, that's so good because this is where the Chalcedonian definition comes in. It's the guardrails. He's one, but he's not mixed up. And his divinity didn't increase or decrease, his humanity didn't increase or decrease. God did not change and humanity did not change. That's what they're, they're saying. These have to be true in order to stay faithful to what the Bible teaches. But Adam can only be Adam as a living man. And so when, God, when the person of God the Son, I'm going to make a heretical comment, put on, uh, took on human flesh, because that sounds like he has a divine interior with a human exterior, but you need to think about the God the Son did something. He became human. 
put on humanity. But that's a heretical way to kind of say it. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, so you have to distinguish. So it might be something like you guys are planning a vacation next summer and uh, it's going to happen, but you haven't been to Montana yet next summer. So it's a plan, but you can't say we've gone to Montana yet because you haven't done it next summer. So in a similar way, God had an eternal plan that he would take humanity to himself, unmixed, unconfused, not divided, not separated. And then at that point in human history, he would formally and officially become a man who could be the last Adam. Okay, can I ask the question in a different way? Yes. What is the problem with him having humanity before if it's, if it's sinless? Does that make sense? Mm. So in the OT, what, what, what would be heretical about him having human nature Unmixed, and blah, 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 blah. and and it being a part of who he was before he was physically incarnate. Yeah, the because then he would not have been a true human. To be like us and always yet without sin required him to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a, a woman to then be born and raised. If he was in heaven. And just said, I'm getting off the throne, I'm putting on some humanity, and I'm going to just jump down into it and save. He actually did not, he's not that merciful and faithful high priest that argues, that the book of Hebrews argues for. So that's why Jesus couldn't just die in heaven. It's why he couldn't just become man. It's why he had to actually go through what you and I go through and and to make atonement for our sins. There, there couldn't be any other way for us to be redeemed than this way that it is in, in Scripture. Okay, I'm still tr struggling with the change part, but I think I can this, well, this grasp is where, the end so of the So the heresy thread. is, this, getting heretical, this is where you have to separate his divinity and humanity. Because we're th you, what I think we might be flirting with is yellow and blue make green. And it's yellow and blue in one person. Make a comment, Rick. I'm seeing here tonight what you've been talking about for the last few weeks. This is how heresy started. Because of our human mind, we can't comprehend at all what God is. We have to go back to the book and believe the truth. We're sitting here trying to decide, gee, is he God or isn't he man? Well, isn't that how we got to this creed thing? Yes. They were doing this all along, and here we are 2,000 years later having the same conversation because we're human, and we can't comprehend God. We and just have to trust his word and believe it to be truth, and I think that's where faith comes to be a great part. We just trust in the truth. That's right. We trust in the truth, and we, with, with every generation, um, the, you know, one of the premises of, of our time together is that, you know, what's that quote? Like, you know, those who don't know their history are bound to, re, are doomed to repeat it type scenario. And so part of these creeds and later confessions is, 
is so that we don't repeat the past. And we have these guardrails set up by our grandpas. And so in that sense, there's a sense in which we do need to wrestle through what this means while humbly recognizing no human being can achieve a perfect knowledge of who the Trinity is or who God the, God the Son incarnate is because only God knows himself. And, and then in between then, as some people will be satisfied, some people will need a little bit more thought, but it's, it's, it's important to talk through those things and always go back to the book. Yes, Carrie. Um, I have a question. So yes, well, hold that mic right there at your chin. Um, you. So he's, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't human until he, he had the incarnation. He, didn't, he wasn't human that before. Correct. In that sense, he wasn't, um, he, there was a genetic history with, with a, a genealogy that keeps getting repeated throughout the Bible. Um, but does that mean that he did not have a divine and glorious body before? Because I, I wanted to read a verse um, in from Genesis 3, after the fall, um, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so... He was walking in the garden. He wasn't. He, he was walking in the garden. He wasn't um, a voice from heaven. He was walking, and so that's like that is you know what is that like his his divine his his divine glorious self was walking. There's a category. Really good observation. We could also go to other places where well at least angels touch people. There's also a category in the Bible called anthropomorphism where God, while he's spirit, is still described in human terms with human qualities to help us understand. He's also described like a chicken with wings hovering over eggs. We know that he doesn't do that. Um, so we have to take care of the language that God was absolutely in the garden with Adam and, uh, Adam and Eve, and he was, and it says that he's walking, he's, he's moving among them. The same language as the Lord uses of his presence in the tabernacle and the glory cloud, the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory cloud. But it also says that he would walk among the people. But you actually have no record of him out for a stroll or something like that. So we have to be careful with um, language that we use literally that's not intended to be literal. It's not literally a chicken uh, or hen. But um, that doesn't preclude God could convey a sense of his presence or being touched. He has a voice, but how does he speak? Because he doesn't have vocal cords because he is spirit. God does not get vocal cords until he is incarnate in Christ. So we have to just make that distinction in our minds um, that when he appears, a Christophany is a pre-incarnate human-looking demonstration of God, but it's not incarnate yet. So that's a really good question. These are, these are great questions, you guys. This is, this, it's good to wrestle through, think through this. And, and, then, and, and some of these are questions that we don't, we don't know to think about until they're posed. And then you go, oh, well, well, oh yeah, what does that mean? And that's part of our, our growing in faith. Yes. Okay, just 
just because you just said God did not have vocal cords. So yeah. what about when, when Jesus was baptized and the transfiguration, when God supposedly spoke, this is my son, and people heard a, they heard a voice? Well, and, he, <laughs> and he spoke from the top of Sinai, the ten words, the ten commandments, so that all the people freaked out and said, don't talk to us. Moses, you talk to us. God is not limited like we are. He doesn't need vocal cords to communicate uh, or be heard. But my point in saying that is to say um, God is spirit. He's incorporeal. He has no body. Until and only the second person. So the Holy Spirit is still and forever always will be spirit. God the Father still and always will be spirit. But now God the Son is forever and always will be God the Son incarnate. Um, with vocal cords. It's a, really good, it's a really good question. And then part of Carrie's question, did Carrie leave? I just remembered what she just said a second ago. Well, I'll, I'll answer that question. So the other thing is, what kind of body did Jesus get when he was incarnate? It was not a perfect body, meaning it was not a glorified body. So he received a body that was under the same parameters of the curse as our bodies so he could get hurt he could bleed he could be sore uh, he could experience growing pains um, I think that conceivably he could get the flu and throw up and be sick and all of those things uh, because he he experienced the same experiences that that we did because his Carrie I'm kind of answering your, your question about his body Jesus did not get a glorified body until his resurrection so the body that he had during the gospel accounts is, was a fallen body. Fallen does not mean sinful in this case. It was subjected to the curse and, and things along those lines. So he could get sick and hurt and things like that. That's why he's the first fruits, not just of him raising from the grave and then we raise with him, but also his glorified body is a prototype of our glorified bodies. That he was still Jesus and still looked like Jesus, though he cloaked himself from the guys on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, but he still was himself. And so we will still look up like ourselves, just a little bit more shiny. <laughs> Maybe less crow's feet. Kimberly, up here in the front, Porter, thanks. Hi there. Um, so when you said that uh, Mary's zygote uh, combined <laughs> with God's spirit to make Jesus, um, I, I guess I never thought of it that way. Um, is it possible? I know this, this, you may not have an answer for this one at all after you start coughing. <laughs> um, but I drank tea the wrong way. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. Uh, <laughs> just. <laughs> Sorry, the, the you know when God made Adam, uh, he just he made flesh, and so I've always thought that Mary was just a, a womb, not really a participant in combining to make Jesus, and so to me that's, am I wrong? <laughs> yeah. So I so the genealogy of Matthew one. Let me say it this way: we have every. <clears throat> scriptural indication to think that God most likely 
used half of Mary's DNA and then created a new DNA to make uh, uh, the man Jesus. Careful, the, the body for the second person, the Trinity, who took on a human nature. In doing so, that means that Jesus really is biologically descended from David. And that has to be preserved to be a Davidic king. <clears throat> and since there was no human father, you, you know, he could get into speculation about, you know, who his sin nature is passed from and things along those lines. That may or may not be extremely relevant because God is knitting together baby Jesus in the womb of Mary. And he is really the son of David, descended from her lineage uh, physically. And he really is the, the divine son. And he really is the last Adam, who's a kind of a new creation, as it were. But not as divinity is not created. See, you have to like qualify everything. <clears throat> That's a really good question. Yeah, versus just Mary had no, like she was a surrogate. Mary was not a surrogate. Great, great questions, you guys. We've got another one up here, Porter. Guys, we're, we're over. I haven't prayed for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. Put your word in our hearts and let us understand you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need to go, please feel free to go. If you want to stay, let's keep going. Uh, I had a question about the, the lineage in Matthew 1 <clears throat> and Jesus is being, being a descendant of David, uh, because it, in, starting in verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. But if Joseph had no biological part in the creation of Jesus, how is Jesus descended from David? Good question. So the, the compatible genealogy is over in Luke 3. Luke's genealogy diverges and goes through some other guy, can't remember who, and it's the genealogy of Mary. In Matthew 1, this is the genealogy of Joseph. Both are descendants of David. So Jesus is still biologically descended from David. And it appears that the kingly line is through Joseph. So it's like double David family type thing. And so it, by adoption, by paternity with, with Joseph, it seems that it still retains a legal paternal right to the throne as well as genetically. Good question. Okay, any, any other ones? Back to the all kids, children. If, if we don't know who's predestined, uh -huh. could it not also be with kids that God has predestined some and we just don't know and David knew? Yes. There's the three options are none are saved, right. only some are predestined, or all are saved. Okay. Those are, those are the, the, the three views. Um, and then within the predestined camp, it could be that all children of believers are predestined, which tends to be those who hold that position, or even more minority would be only some are predestined, even of believers. But again, given um, 
but it's from appealing to the character of God. Uh, in addition to the things I said earlier, I think that it's it's all. Yes, Porter. Just as a comment on that, yeah. um, the way that the uh, Second London Baptist Confession puts it, which I think is a pretty safe way of saying elect infants dying in infancy, meaning we don't know who's elect, but we trust that God is merciful. Right? Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, that'd be another good way to say it. Yes, Carrie. Um, Jesus said, um, let the children, little children come unto me because of such is the kingdom of, of heaven. Yeah. So that's another, that's another reason that I believe that he receives them. Yeah, I mean, that's me too. It's like it's when you, the, the other uh, leg to that stool is not just the David, his son, and Absalom, and then, um, but it would be all that we see of God's disposition towards children and his strongest, most threatening warnings regarding hell are pertaining to people and how they treat children. So that, that just, that leads me to, that's why I lean on that all kids, all children. Great questions. Very, very good questions. Very important questions. Anita, bring it on. <laughs> so um, this is regarding children in heaven and maybe, maybe not really answerable, but um, with a child's mind, well, some, some people never grow out of a child's mind. And I'm wondering about God's mercy toward those. And yeah. I, I have my own kind of like where I've hedged, but I don't have any texts. Yes. Yeah, so we, we, here's what we know, kind of again, guardrails. Every human being is born a sinner in Adam by, by, by nature, practice, and choice and God's declaration. We're, we're sinners. So we all need redemption. <clears throat> but then when you get into capabilities like that, um, somebody who has severe Down syndrome, some, some severe um, effect of the fall upon their bodies. Um, I think the same thing applies there. Now, what we want to be careful to do is not say that the image of God resides only in our intellect. But God is gracious. And so um, when, when someone has the intellectual abilities of a toddler as a 60-year-old's, 60-year-old, or, or you get into the conversation of dementia. Someone is, a, 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 by all evidences, a, just a Jesus-loving person their entire life, and then severe dementia leads them to say or do things later in life that all would look to deny Christ. I think the Lord knows. He knows the fallenness because that's the effect of the fall on the human condition in the brain. So God's grace, so my, my uh, understanding there would be that any severe deformity or things along those lines, incapability, something like that, that God's grace is upon those people. Hi. <laughs> um, going back to, um, you know, children and babies being saved, um, what would you say towards, like, the children that were saved um, and given like a sort of a second chance in life when like complications arise at birth. Keep going that, what do you mean? Uh, well, I have a personal story. Um, okay. 
I was born with a birth defect and a lot of people thought I was gonna die. Um, but thankfully God saved me and allowed me with a life. But uh, going through life, you know, we're all sinners and I'm just wondering, um, you know, if getting the life can either help your salvation or alternatively, um, you know, be bad because it's, you know, your choice now from life. Yeah, so so I would say, let's see. Um, God has a plan for your life because he didn't bring you home when you were a, an infant. Um, there has to be some point at which every human becomes morally, consciously accountable where they can where their heart uh, can affirm or reject the gospel. And so, uh, you know, what, whatever your circumstances were, so, so Jesus did not take you home as a child because he has plans for your life to glorify him in, in this age this, before you get brought back to heaven. So praise the Lord for that. But we are not more or less savable based on what we do uh, it's all by God's grace when he saves us. Now, John the Baptist had the spirit of God from the womb before he was born. So you only have one or two instances in the Old Testament where that, that happens, uh, and which is just a demonstration of God's election, which we'll get into next week probably. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but... Um, if, if someone is sick as a baby and then they keep living, that doesn't mean they're more savable. Um, it just means that God's hidden hand in their life has unique plans, and that person needs the gospel just as much as, as somebody else does. I don't know if that help, answers your question or not. It does, yeah. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Good question. Yes, Dina. No, Dina. Yes, Dina. Um, this isn't about babies. Okay. Um, this one, I don't know if you can even know this, but I always wonder when Jesus was a baby, did he, was he like laying there like, I'm God and this is like ridiculous. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, or, or, or was it like he didn't really know? Do you know what I mean? Like we don't know, we don't have that memory of, of all of that. Because I, I always wonder, like, when he was 12 and he went to the temple, was that kind of like he realized he had something else to do? And before that, he was just like, I'm a really good kid, and I don't know necessarily why I'm good. But then you were saying that he's holding the world, to, you know, he's he's still doing his God thing, too. So it's just as crazy to me to think of him laying there going, this is really ridiculous, kind of. You know, I don't know. I just have this weird... Right, like, like Mary puts him down in his cradle and swaddles him, and she and Joseph go to bed, and then once everyone's asleep, like, he gets up, dresses himself, makes some <laughs> eggs and potatoes, and goes, like, goes out and hangs out as, like, a seven-week-old or something. Or, like, she tells him stuff, you know, when he's little. Like, I remember saying dumb stuff to my kids, and I look now, and I go, that was dumb. And you're just, like, he's looking at her, like, 
I don't understand. I don't know why we even picked you. I don't, you yeah. know, I don't know. I mean, so I, I'm, I'm bringing it down to a dumb level, but. No, you're not. It's a great it's, question. But it's just like, I just can't imagine. Like you said, he created everything and then he had to learn to speak. It just seems to me that there had to be something that wasn't in, that he gave up at that point to be able to do that because, or was it just that he separated it and he knew how to do it? Yeah, so that, that's where we get back into that language of truly human. So he really, really had to learn how to walk. He really learned, had to learn how to speak and all of those things, truly, not just fakely, fictitiously. Um, and yet, his divinity was never diminished. So, you know, how, how, how is he needing to learn to sing the Hebrew alphabet with Mary and then upholding the universe by the word of his power? That's, that's one of those, that's when you get to the point of, of mystery. Where we read in the Gospels, there's some things that Jesus does not know. And, and that's where when we, we have to think about both of his natures. As to his divinity, this. As to his humanity, that. So is it kind of like giving up that part of him that could have just done that immediately in order to do that for us, which is kind of humbling. Does that make sense? I mean, he could you, just... You, you kind of get into Philippians 2 and how he... And there's a lot of debate here. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? That's what I mean. Like, yeah. When you think of that, that's crazy, you know? It is. Just to, to do that. Yeah, pray, it's, praise the Lord. That's where the, you know, the, the, the mystery is. That, that's what he's done. You want to contemplate and meditate on that reality of what it meant for God the Son to quote-unquote leave, even though he's omnipresent as to his divinity, to leave the confines of heaven and all the glory. And his entire life was suffering. His entire life. And he did that for, for us. That's why we have to preserve his humanity. Uh, so that, that, yeah. Praise the Lord. Any other great questions? Anita, do you have some in your pocket? Yes, Porter. This is completely random. I apologize. Uh, nothing really we talked about tonight, but just we've been talking about babies, so why not? Um, so I'm constantly hit with this. My father's Presbyterian, and uh, I know you're going to be covering this in your series on First Peter. He repeatedly brings up to me First Peter chapter three that the flood symbolizes baptism. All the family were brought on board. How would you respond to that from a credo Baptist perspective? Yeah, credo Baptist means believer baptism. Um, so Peter says it's not a removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. So an appeal to God for a good conscience, he's implying something internal is happening in the one being baptized, not external, which means they are appealing to God, well, with a good conscience, which as a believer baptism person would understand that the reason this person is appealing to God with a good, for a good conscience they have the ability to do so, and the infant does not have the ability to appeal to God for a good conscience, one. And two, that would mean that when we baptize a believer, we're saying, excuse me, that something already happened in me. Jesus, the Spirit of God caused me to be born again. 
So when I get baptized, I'm appealing to God that, yes, my good conscience is that I repent and believe your gospel. So I'm already saved, and so my baptism is that appeal for that conscience. Um, I know a Presbyterian is going to have an answer to that, but th I would just say babies can't appeal to God for a good conscience. That's what confirmation is. And so confirmation is when you should get baptized. Thank you. Yeah, good, good question. And then Josh Walker would come up here with his cool hat and his suit and argue with me in Greek. Where do you think my dad gets it from? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Any other open season questions?